A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Choose to think before you act. Lead SA. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Now, speaking of the Mail and Guardian, I think they just have a brilliant, brilliant uh, explanation of uh, the Higgs boson uh, that is, uh, somebody says it would, it may take us nowhere, but they have an idiot's guide, right, to sub atomic theory. Uh, you may want to go through it. For people you are trying to impress, they've got an explanation. For the harassed, sleep-deprived parents, they've got an explanation as well. For English undergraduates, for teenagers, for a child in the backseat, they've just broken it down in its in, uh, simplistic terms. And the Naked Scientist, I'm sure, will talk to us about that. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. I was hoping you could send me a copy. Sounds like just what I need. <laughs> Ah, if you need it, then we are in big trouble, the rest of us. Uh, everyone needs it, I think. It's so complicated, isn't it? Mm, it absolutely, absolutely is. What can you tell us about it? Well, obviously, the the world has gone nuts over this this yes. week, and I think this is the best bit of marketing, above all else, that I've ever seen. Because CERN made this announcement earlier this year and said, well, we think we found this, but we're not that sure. Now they've announced the same thing again, saying we've announced this already but we're announcing it again now we're a bit more sure so i think this is a lesson for all of us who want to market things we just announce something and then say we're not very sure and then we do a little bit more marketing and say now we're a bit more sure (laughs) so but but i mean it is an important discovery because um for a long time um people have have obviously had this question in their mind well we know that stuff got made by the big bang matter material and we can fit it all together into this beautiful jigsaw puzzle we call the standard model which explains how every single atom bit of matter relates to other other bits of matter Mm. except there's this major great chunk missing out of the middle of the jigsaw and that was well why does anything weigh anything and they had to invent a new particle in order to explain this gap in our knowledge. And this was Peter Higgs and a couple of other guys. There were some other people, there's a Belgian and someone else who, around the same time, all sort of jumped on the same sort of theory. But Peter Higgs in Edinburgh got there first. And that was about 50 years ago. And people had this idea that there must be this particle, which at the time they called it the God particle, but I mean, it's been known as various things, but it is mm-hmm. a boson. And it interacts with other particles some more strongly than others, some not at all, and when it interacts with other particles, it makes them weigh something, it it gives them mass. And that was the theory, but proving it has taken a little bit of time. Peter Higgs is now in his 80s, and he was actually at the um, announcement that CERN made, where they they said, but we've got very high certainty that we found this now, and he actually uh, had some tears in his eyes, because he said, I never thought in my lifetime that I'd actually see this work that I began to work on and and formulated actually come to fruition so that's a wonderful story mm. but it does really begin to to enable us to say well we now put our physics on uh, a much more 
um, certain foundation because before people were making theories based on theories that were themselves uncertain. So if the foundations are now a little bit stronger, it means that there's less uncertainty. You can constrain the limits of other predictions and other pieces of work that people are doing. And it means that physics can move forward. But if for the average person in the street, are, when they're asking, is this going to change my life tomorrow? Mm. The answer is no, of course not. Because, of course, we discovered the structure and the sequence of the genetic code and DNA more than 50 years ago. But it's only now that we're beginning to see some fringe benefits from that because we can go and sequence genes, we can sequence people's genetic material and, and predict what diseases they might have or put some of those diseases right. So mm. it takes a long time to do really important science, but this is this is an important piece of the fabric of the universe that we've understood a little bit better this week. Okay, and that's been the analysis and reaction. Tremendous importance to our uh, understanding of the universe. Any questions that you have about this or anything else that you want to ask the Naked Scientist, uh, we're very happy to take your calls on 021-446-0567 Let's go to Roland in Rustenburg. Hi. Good morning, Rady. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. I, I was laying in the hospital and I was looking at a stupid fly on the ceiling <laughs> and I wondered how it lands on the ceiling. Does it do a loop? <laughs> Does it do a roll? I mean, as an aviator, I was very interested, but I just could look fast enough. <laughs> yes, I think uh, the answer is, from what I know, uh, what the fly does is it flies towards the ceiling and then it reaches out with its two front legs and stops fold, stops flying, folds its wings in, grabs the ceiling with its front legs and then swings its back end round and grabs on with its back legs. And then when it flies off, it reverses that process. So it lets go with the back, uh, then lets go with the front, drops under gravity and then activates its wings and off it goes. Okay. Roland, are you happy? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Let's go to uh, Thule in Rustenburg again. Lots of calls from Rustenburg this morning. Good morning, Thule. Hello, Sister How are you? Fine. Thank you. Um, okay. My, my question to the Naked Scientist is, well, when will we be able to divide by zero? I mean, what's a big deal? Is it that difficult? It's been years now. When will we <laughs> be able to divide by zero? Um, well, you can divide things by zero. And the answer is that when you divide something by zero, you get infinity. And the reason for this is if you imagine drawing a graph and you start with numbers where you're, you're sort of doing 1 over x, so y equals 1 over x, so the number on the y-axis, uh, up and down the page, is equivalent to 1 divided by the number on the x-axis. In other words, the numbers across the page. Now, if x is very big, so let's say x is 100, then the value of y is 1 divided by 100, 0 0.01, so you have a very small number. Well, if we make x a bit smaller, let's call it 50, 1 divided by 50 is twice as big, so that's 0 0.02. So that's a bit higher up the y-axis. Now, if you keep going backwards, then what you see is the line sloping. As you go back towards the left-hand edge of the page and x is tending towards zero, the line is sloping up and up and up and up and up. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine a situation where for every number of x you choose, the value of y will get bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you make x smaller and smaller and smaller, then you get a value which is bigger and bigger and bigger. And as far as we can tell, that's going to go on to infinity. So we regard as division by zero as having an infinite number of possible solutions. Thank you very much, uh, Tuli. Let's go to, is it Roger? Roger in Constantia Clough. Hi. Hi, uh, really. Morning, Chris. Man, I'm busy. I'm at home here. I'm recovering from an operation that I just had recently. And... Uh, uh, I, I think I'm coming towards the end of this wound, the cut that they, 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 they did. Uh, and 
uh, it's paining and it's itching incredibly. I don't know which is worse, the cut, uh, I mean, the, the, the pain or the, the itching. Why does it itch? <laughs> it's a really good question, Roger, and I'm sympathetic because I've not not had a, a severe wound, but I've had other things that itch to death like that. And also people say when they have a plaster cast, that's also one of the most excruciatingly itchy things because you can't get to the itch to scratch it. Um, we think that part of the reason for this is that when you have a wound which is closing up, the cells which are at the edges of a wound proliferate and they add new cells which flow down the sides of the wound into the base of the wound. They all connect together and then the cells begin to contract and pull their neighbours towards themselves. And this is what pulls the wound closed. And as they do so, they are irritating or stimulating mechanoreceptive, in other words, mechanically sensitive nerve fibres in the skin and the nerve fibres that also supply hairs. Mm -hmm. And this seems to irritate those nerve fibres and including the family of nerve fibres that we think convey itch sensation. That's part of it. There's also the possibility that the wound may have some low-grade infection or colonisation by microorganisms, and it's also possible that just inflammatory chemicals which are produced by the healing process also wind up these nerve fibres. And the result of that is that you see a higher level of activity in nerve fibres that would normally convey itch. So you experience an itch sensation even though you're not physically being tickled. Thank you very much for the call. Uh, I do want to go back to the HIDS, uh, Naked Scientist, just to get a sense, I mean, of how scientists work. It's very fascinating for me, being a non-scientist. Uh, did we have thousands of scientists over the years contributing to the discovery? Uh, does the work get coordinated from a central place? What can you tell us about that? Well, the thing about science these days is that compared with, say, the 1700s and 1600s, when I mean, people like Isaac Newton and Hooke and that sort of era of people were working where they were lone pioneers science these days is done on a big scale so if you look at the author list the number of people who are included on a scientific publication today you'll see that the number of names there is often huge when the tomato genome consortium published the genetic code of the tomato about a month ago in the journal nature the author list was so big they just wrote the tomato consortium <laughs> and you had to look up online to see all of the names of the scientists who contributed in other words science has got to the point where you can't just do experiments very easily these days and prove really important things you need massive experiments you need very costly infrastructure and you need a lot of other people's help because science is becoming more and more multidisciplinary mm. you don't just do one little subject you often need expertise from a range of different subjects to solve a problem so what cern is effectively doing is solving a particle physics problem but it's doing it with engineering solutions it's doing it with other chemical solutions it's doing it with other bits of physics and computer solutions and you need the contributions of all of these different people because as one person put it to me last week we ran a little event in london mm -hmm. uh, and we got a whole load of physics teachers to come in and we got some of the country's best physicists to come and sit with them so that they could learn what's going on at university at the cutting edge and we we included in that group some people from CERN who are doing these experiments on the Higgs and one lady stood up and she said at CERN we throw away or we generate uh, enough data to fill about 465,000 CDs with data every single second and there's no way we could possibly store all this data so we have to throw most of it away. Um, the point is that there's so much uh, data being generated 
you need enormous numbers of people in order to try and understand it, decode it, and work with it. So science is done on a mass scale these days, mm. and so you can't really say it's just this individual or just this individual with very much ease anymore. So it gets quite tricky for people who want to give out yeah. Nobel Prizes because <laughs> they have to decide who are the three who, people uh, in physics we want to reward. Now I think probably Peter Higgs will be in the running to get a Nobel Prize for the Higgs boson because he and three and two others predicted it. Uh, he got there first but one of them uh, who also was there in the early days has unfortunately now died and I think there's one other survivor so the two of them might be offered it between them. We'll see. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back with more calls and uh, SMSs. Stay with us. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. It is 14 minutes to 10 o'clock and we are taking your calls on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Here's an SMS here from Boo. Chris, he wants to know uh, the phenomena of osmosis and diffusion, do they explain the process by which clothes dry up? Mm, I suppose they, they sort of do. Um, first of all, what is osmosis? Well, osmosis isn't just an album by Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, this is a process by which water moves from an area where there's a lot of water molecules and very few sol solute molecules to an area where there's a lot of solute molecules and a lot less water. In other words, if you have uh, a cell and it has a membrane around that cell which is partially permeable, in other words, some things can go across freely, other things can't move across that membrane. Let's say salt is on the inside in the cell and there's lots of pure water outside, then the water molecules will move freely back and forth across the membrane in order to try to make the concentration on both sides of the membrane the same. And that's the process of osmosis and it's effectively how cells regulate their size. And by controlling the concentration of salts inside and outside cells in the body, you keep your cells at the right turgor or amount of swelling. If this process goes wrong and cells are allowed to swell up too much, they can go bang and that's very bad news. Mm -hmm. Now diffusion is something quite different. Diffusion is actually a physical process by which particles, because of random movement, because all particles that have some energy are moving or vibrating. This means that they will slowly, uh, because of random walk, they will effectively move from one place to another place and they'll do it by going from an area where there's a lot of those particles because on average there's a high probability of finding them there to start with. They'll go to an area where there are a few of them because on average they'll, they'll find uh, ways to get to the lower density or lower abundance area just randomly. Mm -hmm. And so it, Osmosis depends on diffusion because you couldn't have particles moving back and forth across a membrane without them being able to diffuse. But at the same time, diffusion is not the same as osmosis. Now, when you hang your wet clothes on the washing line, right. what is happening is that the clothing is um, saturated with water when it's wet. The wind blows past the clothing and the wind has a very low level of water in the air and the clothes have relatively large amounts of water. So, some water molecules are much more likely to move from the clothes into the air than the other way around, because the air is not going to add much water to something that is already very wet, but it's much easier for the clothes which are very wet to add some water to the air. Mm -hmm. And the air wash sort of blowing past takes away the that water, and along behind it comes some more dry air, and therefore that air can pick up some more water. And so there's a net diffusion of water out of the clothes and into the air. This is not osmosis, though. It's not occurring ac across a membrane. 
Lovely question, Boo. Thank you very much. I'll be watching my I'll be watching my clothes more closely this weekend. Uh, see if they do exactly what we've just explained. Let's go to Clayton in Ravonia. Hi. You doing really? Fine, thank you. Awesome stuff. I love your show. Thank you thank very you. much for an amazing show. Thank you. Um, my question to the naked scientist is around um, conspiracies about the at the end of the world or the twenty first of December. I'm not sure if you heard about Nibiru. Mm-hmm. Or I haven't come X. across that one, Clayton, but um, anyway, tell me. Well, essentially what it is, uh, Zacharias Sitchin um, discovered this based on uh, Sumerian texts and, you know, all these all the scrolls that they found. See, and uh, essentially they say that uh, Nibiru is on another or in another uh, galaxy, and uh, essentially the galaxy is going to intersect with our galaxy every 3,600 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, based on the Mayan calendar, uh, this is going to happen on the twenty-first of uh, of December. The what? The Mayan calendar. Mayan, Mayan. Mayan you know, oh, okay. yes, the Mayan <laughs> Mayan calendar. The what? <laughs> so essentially, what they're saying is, and and I mean, if you if you go onto if you go onto the internet and you just search it, you'll see that there's a lot of stuff happening about uh, about Nibiru. Um, specifically, in Antarctica, there is a, a German space, sorry, a German uh, station there called uh, the Neumeyer Station. And um, if you go onto the internet, specifically YouTube, and you Google that, you'll see there's a lot of activity. There's, and, and like I said, this planet or, or Nibiru uh, apparently has been has been viewed uh, several times over the last couple of months. So, okay. So you want to know? Okay, uh, Chris, anything about that? Sounds complicated. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky one. I mean, if it is some galaxy that's coming, then the nearest galaxy to us is the Andromeda galaxy, and that's three million light years away at the moment. So I think we've got a little while yet before we have to worry about that one. Um, other planets, well, we know there are other planets out in the dark reaches of our solar system that we, we almost certainly know are going to be there, but we haven't seen them yet, out uh, near Pluto. So there are big bodies out there, but we pretty much know about everything that's um, close in, in our own solar system. So I, I think that um, it's a nice story, but I haven't seen any scientific evidence to back it up. And so being a scientist, I'm interested in seeing the real hard proof in the form mm. of scientific evidence, like they do at CERN, with sig- their Sigma <laughs> 5 level of, level of certainty. Mm. Viv in Kempton Park, hi. Good morning. Mm. I'd like to ask the Naked Scientists a question about fiber optic cables. Now, we all know that they're laying kilometers of cables all around Gauteng, and there seems to be three different colors cables. My first question is, how do they join these cables, and is the fiber optic multi-fiber, or is it a solid fiber? Hello, Viv. Um, I, I don't know what cables that they're, they're putting in around you, but the, the way a fiber optic works, just for anyone who's wondering, is that you have very high purity glass on the inside and then a slightly different type of glass around the outside and the interface between those two glasses is a bit like the reflective layer you see if you look at the surface of your swimming pool from underwater and it looks very silvery because light which bounces at a certain angle towards the surface um, in order to refract off of the surface or bend when it goes from light, sorry, from the water into the air above the swimming pool, from a certain angle, if the light came at, at that angle, the only way it could possibly um, bend back through the angle it would need to is to have managed to have left the swimming pool and come from the air in the first place. So in other words, it totally internally reflects. So you get the light bouncing down the internal f- uh, fibre optic um, off of the inside walls and you get this total internal reflection phenomenon. 
Now, um, the way that these things work usually is that they have a bundle of fibres and you, you have to inject light into each of the individual fibres and this is done with a clever laser device and you have a, a device which f fires a laser at very fast pulses so you put little pulses or blips of light down the fibre optic and this is done by coupling a laser source to each of the fibres individually and so when you want to read the data coming off of the fibre optic you need a laser reader so you couple the fibre optic up to a receiver box and that will then see the blips of light arriving and it then transduces them either into a new laser pulse to put into a new fibre optic or it turns it into an electrical signal which you then read off as digital data and then you turn that into whatever data you want to on your computer or your television or whatever. So the answer is that you need m mm -hmm. these things as multiple cores because the data coming down each fibre optic is individual data. But there are other ways of doing it because you can put packets of information down there and then add a sort of uh, a name tag to each one so that the receiving station knows whose data is arriving in what order. But um, if you want to maximise your bandwidth, you have lots of these things all in one big uh, sort of composite cable, I think. Jared in Tukai, you are last call on this one. Thanks for your patience. Thank you, Reedy. Dr. Chris, I'd like to know if there are no pain assessments. Sorry, we, your, your line's not clear. Speak up, please. Okay. Morning, I'd like to know if there's no pain receptors inside your brain. Why is it that when you get a headache, it feels like the pain is inside your head? Yeah, um, you're absolutely right, Jared, that you could actually take a spoon and scoop out a chunk of your brain and you wouldn't actually feel any pain from the injury to your brain, which is why a stroke is actually painless. Ah. It's, it's in fact the irritation to the layers around the brain, the meninges, which are painful. So when you have a headache, headaches can arise for a number of reasons. One of them is because you're a bit dehydrated and the brain shrinks a little bit and it puts tension onto the supporting structures, including the meninges inside your head. The other is when you're stressed and you can end up with um, the muscles over your scalp being under stress and this actually or tension and this gives you a tension headache and when you have a bleed or, or a, a hemorrhage inside your head then the blood irritates the meninges again when you have a migraine mm. you have abnormal electrical discharges on the surface of the brain and this irritates the meninges again so the brain despite having a hundred billion nerve cells in it is completely insensitive to you injuring it but the structures that invest the brain are very richly supplied and can be irritated electrically, chemically, biochemically or traumatically. Thank you very much, Jared. A very, very interesting question. This conversation with the Naked Scientist will be available as a podcast. As always, Chris, pleasure chatting to you. Let's do it again next week. Oh, it's been great fun. Thanks, Reedy. And uh, have a great weekend, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Just on the Higgs boson, I, I, again, uh, the Mail and Guardian on page 8, uh, the science page, it, it, it's a very interesting uh, article uh, of a scientist who's fretting that the elusive Higgs boson may take us nowhere. And then they break it down very nicely in this idiot's guide to subatomic theory. There's the explanation for people you are trying to impress. And then for the harassed, uh, sleep-deprived parents, they're saying if their constituents part, 
if the constituent parts of matter were sticky-faced toddlers, then the Higgs field would be like one of those ball pits they have in children's play areas. Each colored plastic ball represents a Higgs boson. Collectively, they provide the essential drag that stops your toddler or electron falling to the bottom of the universe where all the snakes and hypodermic needles are. Okay, And for English undergraduates, the Higgs boson is a type of uh, subatomic punctuation with a weight somewhere between a tiny semicolon and an invisible comma. Without it, the universe would be a meaningless cloud of gibberish, a bit like the Da Vinci Code, if you read it. And then for teenagers studying metric physics, no, I know it's not an atom. I didn't say it was. Well, I meant a particle. Yes, I do know what electromagnetism is. Thank you very much. Unified forces. Einstein, blah, blah, blah. Mess unaccounted for Yada 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 Higgs boson The end It was a long time ago I'm tired <laughs> And how you would explain it uh, Or how the taxpayers would see it is Its discovery is a colossal Unprecedented Almost infinite waste of time This is what uh, the taxpayer would say about it And this is what the religious fundamentalists would say There is no Higgs boson <laughs> Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.